today on CityCast Denver. A slice of Denver music history that's in danger of being forgotten. There are other storied music venues here that had great acts and wonderful history, but there's really nothing with the history like the dog. Today is Wednesday, July 14th. I'm Alexandra McMahon, filling in for Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. about some news. It's going to be a stormy one today with a high of 87. Well, Denver International Airport officially has a new CEO. City Council unanimously voted yes to Phil Washington on Monday night. This comes after some controversy surrounding Washington, who was named in a lawsuit at his last job at L.A. Metro. But after hearing his side of the story earlier this month, City Council apparently had no qualms with Mayor Hancock's sole pick to run the airport. Washington certainly has his work cut out for him as the airport emerges from a pandemic and the final stages of the Great Hall Project looms. If you want to hear more on Washington's background, check out our episode with Axios Denver reporter Elena Alvarez that aired July 1st. Okay, I'm about to say the words IRS and tax credits, but stick with me because this is important. Senator Michael Bennett's child tax credit will start paying out to Colorado families and families across the country this Thursday. If you have children and make less than $75,000 a year, you're likely eligible for some relief. You can check your eligibility online at the IRS's website. Here's the really important part, though. If you don't normally file a tax return or didn't claim the child tax credit last year, you've got to give the IRS a heads up or you won't see any money. Imagine, it's 1968 and you're hanging out at an after party on Denver's west side. People are talking about how good the Jimi Hendrix show was that night at Regis University. And the next thing you know, the door swings open and Hendrix himself strolls in. He walks up to you, extends his hand and says, Hey, my name's Jimmy. We had the honor to play the after party at the Family Dog for Mr. Hendrix. And what I remember about that scene, one was I had a date and we were out on the floor uh, dancing next to Timothy Leary. And, and then the greatest honor happened maybe in my life. Jimi Hendrix stole my date. Those stories are from a new documentary called Tale of the Dog. The film makes the case that without this one music venue that was only around for 10 months in the late 60s, Denver's music scene would never have become the powerhouse that it is today. So yeah, I have to pull my brain out of the 14th century to have this conversation. Oh man. (laughs) DU art history professor Scott Montgomery and filmmaker Dan Obarski hope that their documentary keeps the legacy of the family dog alive. Well, Scott and Dan, thank you so much for joining us on CityCast Denver. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. We are delighted to be here. All right. We got to start with just generally, what is the family dog? The family dog was sort of a hippie collective that started out in San Francisco in 65. And in 67, they decided to open up a sort of satellite venue out in Denver They opened up the Family Dog Denver, which was a concert hall for new new bands. It had a light show. It was part of this new dance concert environment. And how long was it open for, Scott? Total of 10 
months. It was run by the San Franciscans only from September through the end of 67. Uh, Barry Fay takes over the Denver Dog in January 68, and it runs until July when it closes its doors. So we can't have this conversation without talking about Barry Fay. Uh, He's not only this huge character in the film, but also just generally in Denver's music scene and legacy, um, because he was bringing an axe to the dog at that time that probably never would have come to Denver otherwise. Um, Can you tell me more about his significance with the dog? Barry Fay becomes eventually one of the great rock impresarios and promoters in rock and roll history. He's... Uh, He puts Denver on the map, but he works beyond Denver, so he becomes a major figure. His start is largely at the the Denver Dog, um, where he mainly handles the booking of bands. But he actually is at the, as the film talks about, at the very onset of the dog, it's, it's Barry Fay and his wife who take a demo tape of the Eighth Penny Matter out to San Francisco to try to get a deal conversations with Chet Helms out there lead to the, hey, let's start a family dog in Denver. And so Faye really is at the the origin of the Denver dog. Barry was not a hippie, right? Barry was a hustler. He was a gambler. He was a businessman through and through, as anybody who knew him said. You know, he wasn't in that scene, but he... He got his arms around it and he saw some real potential there. And and he, without Barry Fay, you just you just don't have what you have now in terms of a music scene in Denver. I mean, he is he is the impetus for all of this. Well, and he's also a very controversial figure in Denver history. And I'm glad that the film didn't gloss over that or, you know, make him seem like this kind of hero. But it was just like, he's important. It's complicated, but you have to talk about him. <laughs> And I want to talk about this theme throughout Tale of the Dog. There's this tension between counterculture and police. You know, like the threat of raids was just constantly hanging over the venue. Um, Do you feel like what was happening at the Dog was emblematic of a larger shift in the city at that time? It's hard to say. I mean, you could see headlines from that time uh, where drugs had kind of flowed into the city and you know, there, there was this kind of a new hippie phenomenon of a bunch of people living in, in squalor in Capitol Hill, you know, and, you know, kind of turned on, as they say. And so it was probably going on and swirling around and then it concentrated right on the dog. This was new. Um, it was scary to parents. It was uh, unsettling to the police. And the dog was really the flashpoint, the location. The irony of the whole story story was not lost on a number of the people who interviewed us, that this was sort of where Denver begins to shift some of its identity and where Denver has since, you know, recently gone um, with marijuana legalization and things. Certainly the band, bands like Can Heat see the tremendous irony in their livelihoods being destroyed over marijuana in Denver 50 years ago, and then Denver legalizes before anybody else. Well, I want to talk about that canned heat story uh, because it's this climactic moment in the film. And it's a, there's a pretty serious accusation that the band levels against the police department. They say that drugs were planted in their hotel room, and that's why they were arrested in Denver before their show at the Dog. And you also include the police's side of the story. They vehemently deny this accusation. But I'm curious, where do you both land with what happened to Canned Heat? Can you share? 
So Canned Heat wrote a number of very famous songs going up the country, uh, one of them on the road. Um, these are songs that if you're younger, even if you don't know the names, you would have heard them. Going up the country was whenever you hear any 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 footage of Woodstock, you'll, you'll almost invariably hear that song. You still hear that song in commercials. So when they got busted at the dog in 67, uh, they, they had not written any of these songs. So when they got busted, they needed... Uh, bail money. And, you know, you can see in the film what happens, uh, all, all the kind of drama involved, but they end up signing away their uh, publishing rights. And as a result, they, they never made one dime off of any of their hits. I come away with this view that everyone's telling the truth from their perspective. Canned Heat admits basically that they had hash on them, but they weren't arrested for hash. They were arrested for marijuana, which also does appear to have been planted underneath the seat. Um, a confession has been found. An informal confession by the person who put the marijuana there is out there. Um, what I believe is that somebody put, money, uh, put marijuana there to get themselves out of trouble. So I really think that the police are telling the truth and Can Heat's telling the truth. And what's fascinating yeah. is we have yeah. a kind of a he said, she said story, but they're both right. So, yeah, Denver has definitely left its impact on canned heat. <laughs> right. Yeah, they, they still remember. So what made you want to make this film now? What, what made this moment feel like the right time? We really wanted to let it be the story as recalled by those who were there, by those who were involved. Because, again, that's what we have there's not film. There aren't many photos. Uh, there aren't many recordings. And so it's, as we call it, the archive of individual memory where this tale resides. People came out of the woodwork wanting to tell their story and thank us for doing this. So kind of took it on as a real responsibility. Um, yes, it was, a, it was a fun, amazing project, but we took it as this is real history that needs to be considered carefully. Um, we were painfully aware that we were desperately working against time. It's going to be the definitive statement because we unturned every stone we could. We gathered all the information and put it together, and it's harder to gather the information now. A lot of these people are already have died or are sick, and you can't talk to them anymore. So after going on this long, like, six-year journey of discovery, what what do you think ended up killing the dog now that you, you're a few months removed from the film? I think it died from two things simultaneously. On the one hand, it was run by, you know, good people who were hippies. They were not business people. Um, and this is what happened to the family dog back in San Francisco as well. It ran into financial trouble. It wasn't run like a business. And so they were kind of destined to go under, for lack of a better way to put it. You couple that with the discomfort from the community and the pressure from the police and things, and it made it a, a more complicated environment. So I think it was really a, a double punch that killed it, sort of from within and from without, kind of like the Roman Empire. Yeah. It, it, the, the marvel is that it lasted. The marvel is that it got here in the first exactly. place. Exactly. Like, of all places, and anybody... That's listening. If you drive by 1601 West Evans and you just kind of look around, you go, you've got to be kidding me. You just can't imagine that all of that stuff happened over here. What's what's in the building now? A strip club. And that floor is uh, still under there. 
Everybody talks about the floor. It was Everybody. this lavish design of the Zodiac all around with the family dog sort of logo in the middle. And it was all done in kind of this sort of luminescent day glow paint that I think sparkled or, you know, it, they all say that the floor just glowed with this fabulous design. And you think about what it must have been like 50 you know, four years ago at this point uh, in Denver to be standing in that building on top of that floor with this one of the best, uh, maybe the biggest at the time, liquid light show with these amazing psychedelic posters being projected through the light show onto the wall. The greatest blues and rock bands of all time playing, you know, feet in front of you. Um, and you can see why 75-year-olds are still giddy with excitement when they talk about it. The the camaraderie that, that, you know, we think of now bands as completely separate from the environment. I can't tell you how many people had stories about drinking with Janis Joplin or this or that or the other thing. The, the, the admixture of performer and audience was something that we don't experience now. It was part of a an environment, yeah. a, a culture that, that didn't divide that yet. Well, in, in that vein, though, do you think the building could ever be a music venue again or something resembling the family dog? In my fantasy, it would become a museum of Denver's sort of music and cultural scene, um, which could have performances and also rotating exhibitions. The posters could be up. That's a fantasy. Don't know if it'll happen. Yeah, I mean, you think about... Uh, you think about other kind of holy sites, you think in terms of music, you know, this this has got to be up there at the top, if not the top. I mean, I can't think of anything that is imbued with more wildly awesome history, you know, than, than that place. There are other storied music venues here that had great acts and wonderful history, but there's really nothing with the history like the dog. Mm-mm. Well, my fingers are crossed for that fantasy museum to to happen. That would be that would be amazing. That seems like something Denver needs. Well, Scott and Dan, thank you so much for joining me on CityCast Denver. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us? And if you tell five friends about us and get them to subscribe to our newsletter, you get free stickers. Find more details about our perks program at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Thanks for listening. Playing host is just giving me a whole new perspective onto like what everybody's jobs are.